Our Old Testament reading is from Psalms 1, page 254 of the paperback Bibles. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff of the wind that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Today's sermon text is Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This is the word of the Lord. I just want to begin by pointing out something we all know, that there is a big difference between philosophy and practice. There is a big difference between knowing something, knowing a lot about something, and doing something. Recently, I was listening to an interview with Kevin Durant, who's one of the star players for, the, the goal, for Golden State. And this uh, sports writer was asking him all sorts of questions, making all sorts of suggestions. And Kevin stopped him in the middle of his question and he asked, I just want to know, do you think that you could coach in the NBA? He stopped him because he, he observed that, that this guy had a lot of thoughts, a lot of ideas, a lot of so-called expertise, but he wanted to point out that he had never coached a game in his life. He had never stood on the sidelines in the heat of the game having to make big decisions. He, he knew a lot of things, but he had not actually done any of the things he was talking about. He was all talk, no action. And we can become that way very easily as Christians. Do you know that? We can know all the right answers, but not have a clue what it means to live out the daily grind of following Jesus. And that's what we're talking about today. When we are getting back into Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, all the way to the end of this book in verse 6, is here to address that issue. If you can recall, we, we started this book a year ago. Uh, we took a break, uh, and now we're going to read through it again all this summer. And the first three chapters of this book are all about the theology of our faith, this, the doctrines of our faith. But now, for the next few months, we're going to dive in very deeply to the last three chapters and look at the imperatives of our faith, the practical implications of the gospel in our daily lives. And I'm really looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to taking some time to dig in, get into all the, the details. But before we do that, we need to review. Before we do that, we need to zoom out. We need to look at not just four through six, but one through six. We need to realize that this is one letter. And in this one letter, there is both theology on one hand and practice on the other. Theology and practice. They're both a part of the exact same message. Paul knew that you can't have one without the other. And so today, I want us to talk about that relationship. I want us to talk about the connection between what God has done for us in Jesus and what, how we respond to that. 
What kind of active response he expects from us? And so that's where we're going this morning. Three quick questions. What has happened? Looking back at the first three chapters of this, what has happened to us in Christ? What are we supposed to do about it now? And then finally, what is the result? So what has happened? What are we supposed to do about it now? And what is the result when we do it? Okay, what has happened? What's happened up to this point? The main message of Ephesians, if you remember, it can be summed up in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. And I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles. we got to do some reviewing here this morning. I can't remember what page she said it was. Somebody shout it out when you find it, though. What page is this? Ephesians 1. What is it? 567. All right, open up your Bibles. Ephesians 1, look at verse 7 with me. Verse 10 is where we're headed. In Him, we have the redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. And here's the point. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Paul is telling us here that the the great mystery of God's will has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And that mystery is this. God is uniting all things, all things in heaven and on earth in him. Our sermon art here, it says, all things made one. Which sounds kind of cool, but what does that really mean? What does it mean when when we're saying that God is uniting all things in heaven and on earth in him? Well, there's two things, two dynamics of this unity that you have to understand. There is a vertical dynamic to the unity, and there is a horizontal dynamic. All right, look at Ephesians 2, verse 1, it says, this is the vertical dynamic And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he's raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Folks, I think this is one of the most helpful pictures we have in all of Scripture to show us what our life is like apart from Christ. This picture, maybe more than anywhere else, communicates our absolute helplessness. Our complete hopelessness apart from him. Now in Boston, I don't know if you've observed this, but I find that we can be pretty arrogant about our opinions. Pretty pretty convinced that we are correct. In fact, let's just do a survey. Who here thinks they're wrong? Right, of course not. We think we're right. We, we think we have come to the correct conclusions. That we have lived life. We have lived through our experiences. We have weighed the options. We have heard the facts. And we are now 
correct, right? We think that way about our political views. We think that way about our value system. We think that way about our sports teams. And we especially think that way about our religious beliefs or maybe our lack of religious beliefs. If we believe, then it's because we've figured it out. We've heard, we have been persuaded and we now know the answers. And if we don't believe, it's for the same reasons. We have heard the facts and we have not been persuaded. But we assume that if we hear the right answers, if we are persuaded, then we will change our minds. There is just one piece of evidence that we are waiting on. And once that fact arrives, then sure, we'll be willing to change. If, if X, Y, or Z objection gets addressed, then I would certainly believe. But Ephesians says that's not how it is at all. It says, apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins. Our minds are hostile to God. It, it means that, that we are as open to faith in Jesus as a corpse is open to going for a jog today. Do you remember the Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Have you guys seen that movie? Do you remember the knight who has his arms and his legs chopped off? And he's on the ground. He's like, I'll bite your legs off. That's how we are in our sin. We are arrogant in our ignorance. We think we are in control, but we are powerless to save ourselves. But God, Paul says, by the power of his Holy Spirit, brings us to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says that God takes the dead and he makes them alive again. The Spirit of God comes inside of us and it enables us to turn from trusting ourselves, from living apart from God. It, it enables us to see our sin. He enables us, the Holy Spirit enables us to see our desperate need to have our lives washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Paul says when that happens, it's not because of anything you've done. It's not because of the right thoughts that you've had. It is because of God's grace alone. That's the vertical reconciliation that we have. That's what, what Paul is trying to tell us. We have been united to God through the work of Christ. But there's also this horizontal dynamic. Do you know what I mean when I say there's a horizontal dynamic? I mean down here, on earth. Instead of between us and heaven, there's this between us together. In other words, when we're, we're not just reconciled to God... But we are joined to a people. We are united into a, a people who are committed to the eternal worship of God. Verse 13 of chapter 2, it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
So then you, y'all, all of you, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So on this vertical level, on this individual level, the dead are made alive. God works in our souls to bring us to Him. But, but corporately, Paul tells us that aliens are made citizens of a heavenly nation. That strangers become members together into one household, God's household. And this is awesome, guys. This is so great. I, I loved preaching on this last summer, and I, I love thinking about it again today, because this, this means that our faith, the Christian faith is not a faith for individuals. It's not some super spiritual thing that happens where you get up on a mountaintop and you're all by yourself. It means that if you are a Christian, you are a part of a people. There is no Christian who is alone. Our faith is not a private matter, right? In fact, you can't understand your faith without your brothers and sisters in Christ, without your fathers and mothers in Christ. Here, you see that, that, that God is building a new nation. And, and maybe the greatest thing about this, one of the things that gets me so excited is that we see that this is a nation, this is a people that is made up of everybody. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, when he overcame sin, he obliterated the divisions in our world. He obliterated the divisions between race and class and gender. He, he obliterated the things that keep us apart. Because Jesus is the only source of salvation, because he's the only person, the only God, the only one we all have to come to for salvation, that means there is no person who is better than another. We all come as equals before the throne of God. And as that happens, as we come together, people from every tongue and tribe and nation, people from every corner of the earth and every street in our neighborhood, Paul says that, that something amazing is happening, that we are being built together into this holy temple of God. He says the apostles, the prophets, the word of God, that's the foundation. The cornerstone of the building, the most important building block is Christ himself. But as we come to Christ, he connects our lives together and he says in verse 21 that we are being built into a dwelling place for God. That's what the gospel says. That Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, has paid for the sins of the world. He has reconciled us to God by paying the debt of our sins and he has removed the hostility between us. By giving us a common name. By giving us all the same name, Christian. And he didn't do that because of anything we had to offer. He didn't do that because of the promise that he saw in you someday. He didn't do it because you had earned it. He did it, he says here in, in, in verse 8. For by grace 
you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one can boast. So that's what's happened. He has reconciled us to himself vertically. He has reconciled us to each other horizontally for his own glory. And the story isn't going to end until he has united all things in heaven and on earth under his rule and reign. Hallelujah. It's a glorious thing. But what are we supposed to do about that? What do we do about it now? That's what we are going to be thinking about for the next few weeks. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I therefore, after writing all that stuff we just talked about, that I just summed up, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I therefore... Therefore, that word is the key to this whole letter. That word, therefore, represents the bridge between Christian doctrine and Christian living. If we don't understand how this therefore thing works out, then we are doomed. We're doomed to fall into two of the oldest traps that people have been falling into for thousands of years. The first trap happens when you get stuck in the doctrine. When you know the good news. When you read the first three chapters of Ephesians and you, you hear about the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. You know what he has done, but you stop there. You, you think that that's an excuse not to pursue holiness. You don't pursue transformation. And if that happens, then, then, then you miss out on a core reality of the Christian faith, that our faith is a tangible faith. Our faith is a powerful faith. The gospel is not just cerebral. It's not just for your brain. It's not just something for you to think about and to contemplate. It is the power of God. That's what Paul says in Romans. It's the power of God for salvation. In Romans 12, Paul says, don't be conformed to the power of this, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, the gospel is not just some philosophy, something in, intended to make you feel better when you do bad things. And that's something that we need to be aware of. That's a problem, especially, I think, in our tradition, where we tend to get caught up in our, our brains a little bit too much. Uh, there's a saying, maybe you've heard this, that, that Baptists make the best Presbyterians. Ever heard that before? I say this as a Baptist who is now a Presbyterian. Um, now, forgive my terrible representation of the Baptists to explain this. It's not correct. I have many great Baptist friends. But the idea is that in some branches of the Baptist church, it's all about beating you down with the law. It's a stereotype. It's not true. just want to say that to my Baptist brothers who may hear this recording someday. Um, but the idea is, if you grew up in a church like that, where they hammered you with the law, where all you got was the do's and don'ts and the things that you were supposed to do, that is crushing. And a lot of men like myself have come into a, a place where we've heard the, the good news of God's grace, that it's not about our works, that it's not about what we have done to earn it. And when that happens, you feel free. 
When you hear the grace of God, you, you are relieved. But you can also overreact. You can get to this place where you want to tiptoe around the imperatives. Where you don't want to tell anybody the law because you don't want them to be burdened the same way that you were burdened. And you end up missing out on, on what the gospel really is. When we tiptoe around the imperatives, when we are slow to let people know that they are in sin, that's a problem. I had a friend who was at my house uh, for dinner just a couple weeks ago. And she was saying to me that it was wrong to tell people they were in sin. Inside, in, people in the church, people in my church, she said, if they are... are, are participating in particular sins that the culture says are okay she says it's not loving for you to tell them they're in sin when the culture says they're not it's unloving but you know Jesus he had no trouble with telling people they were in sin when the culture said they weren't do you remember the, the, the story of the rich young ruler we just talked about that a couple weeks ago this, this guy who was wealthy, who was upright, who kept a lot of the rules. The society looked at this man and they said, here is a righteous and good and godly man. But here's what Mark says. When Jesus saw him, it says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. You hear that? He loved him and he said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. That is what this therefore is about. Jesus is saying that it is unloving for us to comfort people who need to be convicted. It's unloving for us not to tell people what the word of God says. The facts of the gospel aren't enough. The facts of the gospel are meant to lead us to transformation. They're meant to lead us to practice in our daily life. The experience of knowing a God who loves you despite your sin should change you. That's the first trap. Knowing all the facts but never letting it get past your head. Never letting your hearts and lives be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. The second trap, on the other hand, comes when you get caught not in the doctrine, but when you get caught in the imperatives. This is sort of the opposite case. It's those people who know all the rules, who know all the regulations, but they don't have that foundation in the doctrine. They don't have that foundation in the grace of God. And if we find ourselves stuck here, we are equally doomed. This is the story of the Pharisees. The chief enemies of Christ. These, these people who had gotten so good at keeping the rules, they didn't see their need for a Savior. They thought they could be righteous. They thought they could be good all on their own. In their goodness, they had avoided Jesus. Now, if you're a part of this church, 
you know, I'm thankful to say I don't know a lot of Pharisees here. I, I don't. I don't know a lot of people who are self-righteous. I don't know a lot of people who think that rule-keeping is what's going to make you right before God. I hope that if you've been coming here, especially for any amount of time, you've heard that plenty. But you also need to hear this morning that Pharisees, self-righteous people, are not the only people who are caught up in the imperatives. It's not just Christians who are happy and feel righteous and good because they've kept all the rules. But it's also Christians who are burdened and despairing because they can't. And I have spoken to so many of you over the years. And I have heard from so many of you that you can't believe that your sins are really paid for. That you can't believe that it has been fully paid for by the blood of Christ. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you find yourself here this morning in that place where you are anxious. Where you are fearful. You're always working to earn it before God and you feel condemned. You're imagining that God is just waiting for the opportunity to smite you. You can't accept the idea, the image of a, a loving Heavenly Father who welcomes you at His table. That's the other side of the coin. That's why we have to understand this therefore. That's why we got to get this connection. Knowing the therefore... That's the key to avoiding these two traps. On one hand, being stuck in the lifeless doctrine. Being stuck in all the knowledge that never changes you. Or on the other hand, being stuck in the empty works that can't save you, that are not rooted in grace, and that leave you feeling anxious and fearful. But then the positive question, the question that I'm asking is, well, what do we do? That's what we don't do. What do we do? How are we supposed to respond to the gospel? What is the correct response to the good news? What is the correct way to live out being reconciled to God and reconciled to each other? In light of the salvation, death to life, aliens to citizens, strangers to family members, how do we walk the line between the, the lifeless doctrine and the empty works? How do we live out the gospel? How do we become holy? Sanctification. That's the word. That's our fancy word, our theological word for getting holier. Sanctification. And if you're a pastor in this denomination, they make you memorize the answer to the question, what is sanctification? And, and here's the answer. Sanctification is a work of God's grace... Where we are renewed in the whole person after the image of God. And we are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. Now that good theology that we were just talking about, the, the one through three, the what has happened part of the sermon. I pointed out that all that stuff was by God's grace, right? That we have been reconciled. By the grace of Jesus Christ. Not by works, but only by his grace. You remember that? Grace made that happen. Well, 
the Bible teaches us that grace also makes holiness happen. It is a work of God's free grace. That's what we have to memorize. A work of God's free grace. Say that. So now you're thinking, well, wait a second. What, what are you trying to tell me? Maybe, does that mean we do nothing? If you're telling me that this is all God's grace, are you saying we do nothing? Weren't you just saying that's not what we do? Well, yeah, I'm saying you do nothing, but I'm also not saying that at all. <laughs> it means God does everything, okay? That's what it means. It means God does everything, but sometimes... When he's doing everything to make you holy, it's going to feel like you're working really hard. You know what I mean? Sanctification is a work of God's grace, but it can be a gut-wrenching process while it's happening. Dying to sin more and more, you know what that feels like? Death. That's what it feels like. That means, practically speaking, if you have a drinking problem, there are going to be times when you are fighting hard against the flesh. When you are going to want to drink really badly. And when you choose not to, it's going to feel like you are being crushed under the weight of temptation and it's going to feel like you're dying to say no. That means that if you are in a difficult marriage... If you're having a hard time loving your spouse, that sometimes it is going to feel like being shot in the heart to not defend yourself, to not shift blame onto your spouse or to lash out at them in anger, but instead to respond to them in, in love and kindness and grace and mercy. That stuff feels like dying. It's not easy. Our sanctification... In those moments, we're very aware of it. But I want to tell you, God is working in those moments. And he was working in the moment before that. And he continues to work in the moment after that. You're just less aware of it. You see, our sanctification never stops. Now on the outside... If people are observing our lives... ...they might see that we have peaks and valleys... ...we have highs and lows... But we don't need to be afraid in those moments. You don't need to worry that God is going to change his mind on, about you and, and kick you out. Because scripture tells us, he who began a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion. So what's your role then? Well, it's mysterious. But a really great illustration is one that, that Manny told me a couple months ago. And now that I've cited him, I'm stealing it, and I won't cite him anymore, but I'm probably going to use it a lot more. This is great. <laughs> he was saying that our sanctification is a lot like uh, a mother who is, is cooking dinner with their child, their small child. Maybe in the course of preparing the meal, the child will pour noodles into a pot. Maybe put in some salt and stir things around. She'll help out. But all the while, the mother knows the dish that's being prepared. And she's not going to let things go sideways. When the meal is finally put together and laid on the table, that child might say, look at the dinner I made. But you know all the while that it was the mother who really cooked it. 
So what do we do now about our salvation? Well, on one hand, the answer is everything we can. We work as hard as we possibly can to pursue holiness and righteousness before God. But at the same time, you got to recognize you're not doing anything at all. God is the one at work. So finally, the last really short thing I want to say is, what is the result of that? What happens when we live like people who have been reconciled to God and reconciled to each other? What happens when we do what Paul is is begging us to do here? He's urging us to do. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Well, something real happens. That's what you got to hear me say. Something real happens. This book, Ephesians, it's all about the church. It's all about the unity of the body as we all come to Christ together. And as we study this over the next few months, you're going to see that, that when that happens, that unity, it impacts everything. It impacts every relationship we have in the world. It, it impacts the way bosses relate to their employees, the way wives and husbands relate, the way parents and children relate. It impacts every relationship in society. And what Paul tells us is that when people live as though they are reconciled, when we get the therefore, when we get the connection between the doctrine and our lives, when Christians are living holy lives rooted in the inexpressible, boundless freedom that comes from the grace of God, when we are living lives rooted in goodness and grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ, well, when that happens, the whole world sees Jesus. And man... That is what I long for when I read this. I long for people to see my life and see Christ's love. I long for people to see the way I love my wife and I love my children. And that shows them Christ's love for the church. I long for people to walk in this room and to see us worshiping together, to see us loving and serving each other, to see how we're coming from every street in this neighborhood together to glorify God. And I want them to see Jesus. I want them to see that we have been reconciled by his blood, that it doesn't make any sense, but God is working. And you know what? Because of Ephesians... Not only can I confidently tell you that that can happen for us, that dream can happen for us, but it will happen for us. It is happening for us. Every one of us who surrenders to Jesus, who repents of their sin and turns to him, it says we will be made like him. That's what the therefore is all about. And if you're like me, then that's both extremely encouraging and it's also a painful reminder of just how far we have to go. How far we have to go before someone sees me and sees Jesus at the same time. Sees the way I interact with my wife and kids and sees Christ's love for the church. Sees the way that we love and serve each other and sees a reconciled community of people. But that's why we have this table. It's for us.
as we are trying to live out that dream, as we are trying to pursue Christ and holiness and live in righteousness. And that's what I want to close by doing, inviting us to come and receive. If you're one of those, if you're feeling like you are trapped in your dead works, if you are having trouble believing Christ's love for you, or if you are, are stuck in your brains and you realize there is no holiness, there is no righteousness being produced in your life, if you are excusing your sin, I want to invite you to come here and confess. Come up here and tell me while I stand at the corner of the table, and I want to pray for you. I want to ask that God's Spirit would move. Even now, if you're wanting to do that, you know that God's Spirit is moving. I want to invite you to come and, and eat this bread and, and drink this cup and remember not only the promise of God's grace, not only the doctrine that we know, but the power that is available to us as His Holy Spirit works in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the good news. I'm grateful for this word. I'm grateful for this therefore, that we don't have just a, a cerebral head knowledge that we come with. We don't just have a philosophy like everyone else offers, but we have the Spirit of God changing us, transforming us into your image. Lord, would you make us into a holy people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.